You know, I think about this regularly as we gather on Sundays, that what a grace this truly is to be able to come together as God's people and sing these truths. Even that song, a, a prayer uh, that we can sing together, knowing that Jesus is our hope, our trust, and how we need him. We are not uh, independent individuals just going about our merry way, doing our own thing, although we try to do that, but we are in desperate need of Jesus to save us and to sustain us and to guide us and strengthen us. We need him. And uh, it's a reminder of that. And so when I say this is a grace, these songs we sing, the truths in which we consider from the scriptures uh, are reminders to me and means of grace through which God gives us to make us more like Jesus. And it's easy to take this for granted. It's easy just to come in and check the box and take this for granted and forget that God is using this even to conform us to the image of his son. And it's a joy to be able to think that and know that God loves us in that way. Well, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter 4, Nehemiah there in the Old Testament. Nehemiah chapter 4, we're making our way through uh, this book of the Old Testament. It started just several weeks ago. Find ourselves in now chapter 4 as we continue our way through. Uh, coming alongside Nehemiah and the people of Israel, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem after being um, spending many, many years now in exile, have returned to the land to rebuild. That rebuilding process kind of halted. Nehemiah got word and has now returned to Jerusalem to help lead the efforts to rebuild the city. We find ourselves in chapter 4 today as they continue that work but stand opposed. So let's pick up with that. Nehemiah chapter 4, they're beginning in verse 1. We read, now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sembalat and Tobiah the, and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know 
or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we're labored at the work and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Let's pray. Father, this is indeed your word and you have given it to us for our good. Lord, would you help us now as we consider chapter four of Nehemiah, that you would give us wisdom and grace, that we might take from the, these, these verses, the very things you would have us hear and see today, that our lives would be filled with faith and confidence in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, according to the ministry Open Doors, there are presently more than 360 million Christians that live in places around the world where they experience high levels of persecution just because they follow Jesus. That would be one in every seven believers in the world face high levels, not middle, mediocre levels, high levels of persecution. In fact, just recently, Open Doors, it's a ministry that highlights Christian persecution throughout the world, published what's called their yearly World Watch List. This list includes the top 50 countries in the world where it's most difficult to follow Jesus. Just to give you a taste of that, the top five countries this year that they are saying, the top five countries where it's most difficult to follow Jesus are one, number one, Afghanistan, number two, North Korea, followed by Somalia, Libya, Yemen. And then it continues on for 45 more. It's ministries like Open Doors or others like Voice of the Martyrs that remind us to think about the global church and the ongoing reality of Christian persecution that exists in the world. Many of our brothers and sisters experience some of the most difficult levels of persecution that we will never know about ourselves. In many ways, we are spoiled, blessed. We should be thankful for what we have, but mindful that there is ongoing persecution 
in the world so that we can pray for our brothers and sisters and support them. All of this to say that it's a reminder to me and it should be a reminder to us that the world stands opposed to the gospel. Our very source of hope is the world's source of hatred. You ever thought about that? That the very source of our hope is the very same source of the world's hatred against God. While many of our brothers and sisters face intense persecution, we know that opposition to the gospel comes in various forms. Indeed, friends, if you commit yourself to following Jesus, you may not have your life threatened, but you can rest assured you will be opposed in this world. This is not something that should be a newsflash to us because Jesus said that's exactly what would take place. In John chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Long before Jesus spoke these words, Nehemiah and the Jewish people experienced this kind of hatred. They knew firsthand. In fact, they're documenting for us, inspired by the Spirit now, for us to kind of go back throughout the, the, uh, the years of history and see firsthand what it was like to be opposed. As we look at this chapter today, Nehemiah teaches us that very truth, that God's people will be opposed as we strive to faithfully fulfill God's purposes in the world. That's the reality we face. As we seek to be faithful to the purposes of God in this world, as we seek to be obedient to him, as we seek to honor him with our lives and with our, our work in this world to honor the Lord, to fulfill his purposes, we will be opposed. So how do we deal with that? Well, here in chapter four, I think we see several ways that we are called, encouraged to respond to the opposition that we face in the world today. And I wanna walk us through those, um, those responses to opposition as we think about this chapter this morning. Really just two broad things, several subpoints underneath each of these, but two, two main ways that we can respond to opposition. One, first one is this, we need to recognize the efforts of our opposition. We need not be naive in the world. We need to recognize what the opposition strives to do and how the opposition seeks to go about its way. We know that from chapter two, verses nine and 10, as Nehemiah began to return from Persia down south now to, towards Jerusalem to rebuild the city. Some were not happy about this plan. We were introduced in chapter two to two individuals, Sanballat and Tobiah, as they rise up and express their disapproval, disapproval about the work that Nehemiah was to engage in. So here in chapter four, these same men resurface. Verse one, when Sanballat heard 
He was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. As we think about this opposition more clearly, I think it would be helpful for us to, to see a few things that's generally true of opposition we even face today, but we see snapshots of here in this passage as well. First is this, just the nature of opposition, the nature of our opposition. And one of the things we need to keep in mind when we think about being opposed in the world today, certainly true of Nehemiah's day, is that when God's people are are attacked or opposed in any way, that that opposition is ultimately opposed to God. But the nature of the opposition at the end of the day is not you or me, it is the Lord. Sinballad and Tobiah knew that a strong and revived Jerusalem would be a threat to them in many ways, politically, religiously, and so forth. And they despised this work because it was being done in God's name. They despised this work because of that. We get a sense of that from Nehemiah's prayer in verse 5 where he says to God, for they provoked you to anger. There's this, this, this deliberate, or even if it wasn't deliberate, there's this, this, this response from Sambala and Tobiah <clears throat> that Nehemiah recognizes as a spiritual sense of opposition. I think this is something we need to keep in mind today. The reason believers are hated, opposed, persecuted by the world is because we refuse to give the world our allegiance. Our trust and our hope is in the Lord, not the world. I read earlier from a passage in John chapter 15, and I want to read further what Jesus said there. Kind of a little bit more context in what he was saying. John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. See, that is the problem at the end of the day. The nature of the opposition is because those who stand opposed to us as believers in the world today, those who stood opposed to Nehemiah stand opposed because they don't know the God of heaven. They don't know who God is. They don't know who the Lord Jesus Christ is. They've rejected him. They continue to live in darkness and rebellion against their creator. And the nature of op our, our, our opposition is a spiritual reality. It's a spiritual opposition. The world hates God. And anything we seek to do in his name will result in the world's hatred of us. So you see the nature of our opposition, but I want you to also just recognize a few things about their methods. The methods of opposition. That there are many ways in which God's people in the world are, are opposed today. Anything from ridicule to death and everything in between. In our text here, we see at least three examples of how God's people were opposed. There was intimidation, 
Sanballat and Tobiah, as they were jeering at the Jews, as, as they were trying to intimidate them and calling into question that you see intimidation, ridicule, and even hostile threats. Sanballat was seething with anger. He derided, he jeered at them, he taunted them. You see the five questions that he, he poses towards them. Beginning with what are these feeble Jews doing? And every question he, uh, those five questions that he presents to them, it's, 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 a, it's a jeering kind of thing. It's as if he's ridiculing them. What are you going to do? Rebuild your temple and, and sacrifice again? You feeble Jews, you, you can kind of see just the, the hatred in those questions, taunting them, intimidating them. Tobiah even adds on to it by criticizing what he thinks is a poorly built wall. He said, even if a fox was to jump on the wall, the wall would break and crumble. Later on, these intimidating taunts turn into an all out threat of attack. The threat of killing them. You see that in verse 11. We will come among them and kill them and stop the work. Their goal, Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and the others that are listed in verse seven, their goal was to discourage the Jews from completing this project, even if that meant physically attacking and killing them. We know the world's hatred of God results in all kinds of physical responses to God's people. And that is certainly true today. There are more people that suffer today than ever have for following the Lord. It's a goal. It's the world's goal to keep us from serving God's purposes in the world. And friends, that should not be a surprise to, to us when it happens. Sometimes I think Christians, particularly in the West, are surprised sometimes, naively surprised when the world comes against us and we should not be surprised. Jesus said that it was going to happen in John chapter 15. Let me tell you what Peter said. First Peter chapter four, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised, he says. The fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You see there, Peter's pointing out that we should not be at all surprised when Christians suffer, particularly a suffering that we receive, insults that we may receive for following Christ. It should not be a shock to us. Brothers and sisters, the, the enemy will often be loud and proud. It will be loud and intimidating, but that should not be something that derails us from serving the cause of God in the world. Listen, the world feels threatened by the gospel. And rightly so, in a way. It's the gospel, the good news that we have in Christ, that Jesus comes as a sacrificial provision to, to save us and forgive us from our sins if we would put our hope in him. 
that his life, death, and resurrection were all to, to secure us from our sin, to forgive us and cleanse us from our sins, that we could be rightly reconciled to God. But not only that, that we would be transformed, that we would become a new creation, that holiness and righteousness would become our priority and that we would slowly but surely be more and more weaned from the world that we would follow after Christ. And so yes, in that way, we are a threat to the world and its system and its worldview and its way of thinking because we follow Jesus. He changes us. God is actively seeking to reconcile and transform sinners in this world to save them from the world's grip and influence. You know what it's like when you're sound asleep in a dark room. Maybe it's early in the morning and you're maybe half conscious. So strike the sound asleep. You're alert a little bit, but it's a dark room and somebody comes and flips the light on, right? If you're like me, you're ready to fight at that moment, right? That's, that's not a good thing to do. Um, you know, just flip the light on and, you know, you kind of wince and you put the pillow over your head. Well, in a way, that's how we are towards the world. The world lives in darkness and it loves the darkness. And we are like a bunch of 60-watt light bulbs just walking around, lighting up the world as we go about with the truth of the gospel. It does not like the light. The world is happy with darkness. And exposure to light is a threat. Brothers and sisters, you need to know that you will be opposed in this world. You need to recognize it. It should not be a surprise to you. You should understand the, the various tactics and plans and, and ways of the enemy. And you see that just revealed a bit for us here in this text. But simply recognizing that, re, being, understanding that this is a reality that we all will experience in some way in the world today. Yes, there will be varying levels. Some of our brothers and sisters are undergoing suffering that is unfathomable to us, but even us here in the comforts in which, the freedoms in which we enjoy will be opposed because of our faith in Christ. So then what do we do? Number two, we, we're called then to, to persevere faithfully in the face of that opposition. As you see here in this text, Nehemiah faces the opposition and he continues to lead the people on with the work. He doesn't ignore the threats but he acts in a way to deal with the threats that also allows him and the people to continue on with the work that they have been called to do in Jerusalem. I want you to notice several things that we observe here in Nehemiah's response that I think are super instructive for us today, even as we respond to opposition that we may face today. I want you to notice several things that we find here in the text that instruct how I think we should respond as well. First of all, you see how Nehemiah, and God, Nehemiah in particular, and the people of God, but Nehemiah, he clinged to the Lord in prayer. Remember, we've talked about this as we've walked our way through Nehemiah thus far. Nehemiah was a praying man. He, he spent time in much prayer. And as he hears of the scorn and ridicule, there in the first two or three verses of chapter four, the, the taunts from Samballat and Tobiah, he doesn't turn to address them directly, rather he turns to the Lord in prayer there in verse four. Verses one and two, or excuse me, in verses two and three, you see the, the, the intimidation, the taunts, the jeering, and then chapter, in verse four, Nehemiah's response, he prays. 
He prays. And he teaches us, I think, an important truth. When, whenever we face opposition, we must never let opposition drive us from God. Rather, it should drive us to him. I think often when we are opposed or someone pushes back against our beliefs or our faith, our temptation is to immediately fight back, to push back. But Nehemiah doesn't do that here. His first response was to pray. He prays. I love what John Bunyan once said. He said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Look at the content of Nehemiah's prayer. It's, it's quite an intense prayer. It's short. He says, hear, O God, who, hear, O our God, for we are despised. And then he asked God to do several things. He says, one, turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. He's calling God to bring justice against these enemies. They have stood opposed to God's people, which ultimately is an opposition to God's purpose and plan. And now Nehemiah is asking for God to triumph over them and hold them accountable for their evil threats and evil ways. It's a strong prayer. And I think there's something we ought to wrestle with here in this prayer because a question that comes to my mind is how does a prayer like this in verse 4 and 5 jive up with the command Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, where he calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Nehemiah is praying for God's hand of justice to come quickly and swiftly to take care of the enemies that are opposing them. How do we reconcile the two? After all, you think about that, that the enemies of the gospel are those in most need of the gospel, right? Well, first of all, I think one of the things that we need to keep in mind is as we pray, we need to remember that it is not wrong for us to desire and ask for God's justice to prevail over evil, especially an evil that stands opposed to him. They were opposing God's purposes. And while it may seem that way, it's not a contradiction to desire for justice to happen while we're also desiring for repentance and forgiveness to be given. Some will persist in their sin and ultimately face the fullness of God's judgment in the future. But others, having experienced God's temporal judgments in the present for their evil ways, may turn and trust in him. We see that in the Apostle Paul, don't we? He persecuted the church, and yet God radically transformed him. The point of all this is simply to say that in the face of opposition, we must look to the Lord and ask for God to move upon those who stand against us. That it is right to pray for God's triumph over the enemy whatever that would look like. 
Therefore, we must show that we are dependent upon the Lord to work and to move in the face of the world's hatred. There is this, this, this weird but, but I think needed balance of desiring God's triumph and justice against the opposition while at the same time loving them and praying that God would change them. That's the Christian response. So we cling to the Lord in prayer in the face of opposition. And as we pray, we're praying for God's strength and help, yes, but we're also praying for our enemy. Praying for God's truth to prevail and for God's word to transform hearts. Second thing that we see here is that we're called, I think, to put off ungodly fear. Put off ungodly fear. Nehemiah hears the taunts of the enemy and he turns and he prays to the Lord. We see that. And he continues to lead the people in the work. I love the simplicity of the statement in verse six after Nehemiah prays. So here's all of the threats in verses one through three. Nehemiah prays to the Lord in verses four and five and then simply in verse six, so we built the wall. Nehemiah and the Jews actively mobilized to repair and restore Jerusalem. Then as the surrounding threats from the area nations can continue to, to, to rise up against them, Nehemiah's response was to pray and say, so we built the wall. They continued the work. Despite the threats, despite the intimidation, despite the ridicule, the work continued on. That should be an encouragement to us. But that didn't mean that God's people didn't wrestle with fear. If you continue reading in verses 7 through 9, the opposition continues to mount. Not only Samballot and Tobiah, now you have the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites. This rising coalition coming against God's people in Jerusalem, threatening them to cause confusion in it. Verse 9 says, and we prayed to our God. So there's a response again of prayer. It's continuing all the way through this passage. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And so you see the response there. But then when you look at verses 10 through 14, it becomes clear that the people have largely lost their enthusiasm and excitement. They are weary under all that's going on with the rebuilding efforts and the threats that come against them. They're exhausted under the physical demands of the rebuilding and the constant need to protect themselves. In verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return. So you not only have their weariness, you have the Jewish people living out in the, the surrounding villages saying, you need to leave the city and come where it's safe. To which Nehemiah replies in verse 14. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You see in verse 10 and 11, their strength had failed. Verse 11, their enemies were, were increasing and, and ratcheting up the, the threats, the, the, the threat of even killing them. They had friends and family and, 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 and others, acquaintances who were calling them out of the city so that they could be safe. And Nehemiah comes in and says, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord. 
Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord. I wonder how many of, of us in this room, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you think of yourself as fearless? Like you just, you're just not afraid of anything. If you did raise your hand, I'd call you a liar because there's something you're afraid of, I'm sure. Or maybe you'd be quick to admit that you do have certain fears. And obviously not all fear is bad, right? I mean, teaching our kids to have a healthy fear, like not touching a stove that's hot or running out into a busy street is a good thing. There should be some, some level of fear there in their hearts. The kind of fear I'm talking about, though, is a fear that keeps you from serving the Lord and his purposes. A fear that paralyzes you that would keep you from obeying the Lord. It's something that he's called you to do for his sake and for his name. You see, a significant fear that I think all of us struggle with to some degree at one point or another is what we call the fear of man. How much do you care about what others think about you? How often are your decisions influenced by the thoughts and opinions of others? See, this is something in various ways that we wrestle with, isn't it? You see, whenever we fear others more than we do the Lord, our fruitfulness and impact for the kingdom of God will suffer. And God will not be glorified. The only way you will find liberation from a deliberating fear of man is to have a genuine and rightly oriented fear of God. That's what Nehemiah is calling the people to here, isn't it? Do not fear them. Remember the Lord. You see that? Don't fear them. Fear God. He's great and awesome. Get your fear right. Brothers and sisters, I think this is a reminder to us that when our fear is rightly rooted in the Lord, then we don't have to fear any kind of opposition that the Lord may call us to endure in this life. Nehemiah says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. This is the right fear that we're called to embrace. And so when we find ourselves, find ourselves fearful to the point of not serving the Lord, then our fear is out of alignment. Our, our fear is focused on the wrong thing. If we are more concerned what the world thinks or what people may think, and it affects our decisions and what we do, how we live, then we find ourselves in a very bad spot. Put off ungodly fear. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And recognize, brothers and sisters, that, that there's going to be many things in this world that will cause you to be fearful or provide opportunities for you to choose to be fearful in those moments. It's at that time that we need to remember the Lord and put off ungodly fear. Number three, we need to prepare and act responsibly. In verse six, Nehemiah demonstrates his resolve to rebuild even in the face of opposition. So we built the wall, he says. And then if you look at verse nine, 
And again in verse 14, look at verse nine. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Look at verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials, to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, sons, daughters, wives, and homes. What we see here in this, in this narrative is Nehemiah's view of God's sovereignty and human responsibility being teased out. He prays and trusts the Lord to move, but he also takes responsibility. Nehemiah is not a fatalist. Fatalism is an error we need to avoid. That idea that, well, God's gonna do what he's gonna do. It's just gonna happen however it's gonna happen, therefore I'm not gonna do anything. That is not biblical Christianity. That is an error we must avoid. We recognize the fact that God is sovereign over all things and we pray to him, we trust in him, we put our hope in him knowing he is powerful and all wise and will see us through, but yet we take responsible actions he calls us to. It's exactly what Nehemiah does. He prays, he trusts the Lord and he takes action. You know, friends, prioritizing prayer amidst adversity doesn't mean you and I shouldn't ultimately do something. He prays, he takes action, and there is nothing inconsistent about doing both. We pray and we trust God and we also do what we can to further God's purposes in the world. Friends, this understanding of God's sovereignty and human responsibility is what we're presented with in the Bible. And there are errors on opposite ends that we need to avoid. One error is not seeing God sovereign at all and everything's dependent upon us. That's a pretty miserable way to live. Or the lazy route is God's sovereign. He's gonna do what he's gonna do. Therefore, I'm just gonna eat, drink and be merry and watch him do his thing. That's ungodly. God is sovereign. He is powerful, he is at work, he is fighting for his people and yet we are called to engage the work ourselves as well. This understanding of sovereignty and responsibility is modeled here and it exhorts us to do the same. So even in the face of opposition, we pray and yet we take action, the necessary precautions, we calculate the risks and we continue to faithfully serve the Lord as we pray and we trust him. I think you can apply the same thing to so many other areas. Think about the work of evangelism. We pray to the Lord knowing that it's only God that can change the heart of a sinner. And yet that person will not be saved unless they repent of their sins and believe in the gospel. Therefore the gospel must be proclaimed. It must be proclaimed. Discipleship. We pray, trusting God's spirit to work in us, yet we give ourselves to the spiritual disciplines. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, yet it's God who works in you. You see the, the, the balance Paul understood. So yes, we pray, but we also prepare and we act responsibly. That's how we respond to so many different things in the world, but certainly to opposition. And then lastly, we continue in the work. We continue in the work. Prayer is vital as we cling to the Lord in prayer. We, we have to fight against ungodly fear, rightly orienting our fear in the Lord. We prepare and we take responsible actions 
that we have control of, and we continue on. We persevere with what God has called us to do in verses 15 through 23. The people continue on with the work, and it's clear that Nehemiah's prayer has been answered because the plans of the opposition have been frustrated, and they're no longer coming against them, at least at this point. They're always going to be there. You see, verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. But as they returned to the wall, they, they, they did return to the work, but they returned with precautions. They, they returned with preparation. They, some would work on construction. Others would hold spears and shields and bows, etc., taking watch as the work continued. See, the taunts of opposition, as we see here in this text, they're met by prayer, taking the right precautions as they stood in a place of constant readiness, and they continued on with the work. Indeed, as we continue to read this passage, Nehemiah recognizes that even as they're continuing the work, they're all spread out. And he tells them, we're, we're such, we're, our workforce is so spread out, like, listen, if we see something, an attack that's going to come, You'll hear the trumpet. When you hear that trumpet, come to where the trumpet is, and I will be there to lead us on and know that God will fight for us. See that in verse 20. But I want you to see as as Nehemiah shares that, he's motivating them not by a sense of his own greatness, but of God's greatness. And so the people continue on with the work. You see that again, don't you hear in this text? God is at work for his people. God has promised to fight for his people, yet the people continue doing all they can to advance God's purposes. Brothers and sisters, that is biblical faithfulness. That is the way we ought to go about our work, even in times of adversity and, and opposition. Again, to quote Peter in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Peter says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So when the world gets loud, when when the world gets in your face, when the world ridicules you, insults you, even threatens you, your response is to prayerfully continue in doing good. Keep on serving the Lord. Hold fast to the promises of the gospel and keep serving King Jesus. Nehemiah understood that he served someone infinitely greater than himself or any other earthly king for that matter. And he encouraged the people with that same truth. And they worked together, motivated by the greatness of God. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And they worked together to fulfill the work. Brothers and sisters, we continue in the work because God is worthy and he is present. He will lead us forward despite what we may encounter in this world. He will lead us forward and we are called to be faithful and persevere in the work as we rely upon him but continue to do what he's called us to do. It's a reminder, brothers and sisters, that if you seek to serve the Lord in this world, you will be opposed. There is a real enemy and it wants nothing to do with what you believe, with how you live, and with the calling God has given every single one of us in his church. The extent of that opposition will vary. It will be ebb and flow in intensity. 
Sadly, even those who are the closest to you will be some of those who stand most opposed to you. But as those who have been called out of the world, we must remain steadfast in God's purposes. Know that you do have an enemy. Know what you're up against and continue on in faithfulness, remembering the Lord who is great and awesome and doing what you can to keep on serving. We pray, we fight as defenders of the gospel, but we work all the while trusting the Lord to fight for us. That's how you face opposition in this world. You pray, you defend the truth, and you give yourself in faithfulness to the work God's called us to do, knowing God is present and he will fight for us and his purposes will be accomplished. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this passage to instruct us in, in our day and time. Lord, these, these people so many thousands of years ago now, Lord, that faced opposition, Lord, this passage is instructive because it shows us how to go about that, how we too can face a real enemy today. The threats may look and sound different, may have varying levels of intensity, but Lord, we still have the same enemy. We still have opposition that occurs in, in this life. And Lord, the, the fact is, if we're not facing opposition at some point in our life, that I'm not sure that, that we're giving ourselves to what you've called us to. So Lord, would you help us? Lord, it may be that there are some in this room right now that are just under so much pressure maybe from coworkers or family members because of their faith. Maybe they feel the weight of opposition in very difficult ways right now. Lord, my prayer is that this passage would be of comfort and encouragement to them. That you would call them not to, to cave in to the pressures and the fears of this world, but Lord, that they would remember the Lord who is great and awesome that their hope and trust would be in you and that you would grant them grace to persevere in their calling. Lord, it may be that some in this room, they've not really faced opposition or they're, they're not under that pressure at this moment, but Lord, would you prepare them because there will be the day when that will be the case. Would you empower us as a corporate body, as a church to be faithful in this world Together, unified around the gospel, unified in the, in the promises that you've given us, depending upon the truth of your word, going forth in faithfulness. Lord, help us to persevere in the work to which you've called us to do. And even when the world gets loud, Lord, would you help us to depend on you and to continue on in faithfulness. Father, provide for us, protect us, and grant us all that we need to be faithful to you. Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.